Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Good morning, church. I feel like this carpet represents a desert because every time I step on it, my mouth goes dry. <laughs> it's, it's... All right. I think before we start, let me just pray for us. Father God, we, we have such a privilege, Lord, of, of knowing you this morning, Lord. You have such a privilege, Lord, of through worship, Lord, to enter your presence, Lord. And, and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present in this moment. And thank you, Lord, that you want to share your word with us, Lord. And, and I pray, Lord God, that your word will, will cut into our hearts, Lord, that it will reveal, um, that it will cut between marrow and bone, Lord. Cut between, um, yeah, Lord, all the things in our lives which are from you and all the things which are not, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us, Lord, to, to repent, Lord, and allow us, Lord, to respond to what you show us this morning. And uh, thank you, Lord, that you encourage every single heart. Um, and we just thank you for that. Amen. Right. Um, so I, uh, I thought it was fit of us going into the raining season to speak a little bit about uh, storms. Um, and uh, me, we haven't been experiencing too much yet, but um, we are going to focus in on Acts 27 this morning. It's quite a bulky chapter. Um, it's not just three or four verses, so please buckle up, bear with me. Um, but um, I, I want to focus through Acts 27. I want to look at a few um, you know, events and um, and, and interactions with people and the specific storm which we see Paul um, experience. Um, and, and through that, three things I want to focus on this morning, and it's Paul's character, Paul's crisis, and Paul's comeback. I worked really hard for that alliteration. I'm just, <laughs> I wanted to, but then I'd have the mic, I would high five myself. But, so, so Paul's character, Paul's crisis, and Paul's comeback. Um, and so we're going to start reading from Acts 27. Um, and just, a, just an interesting fact before I read this. Um, this is like a, a nerdy fact. But uh, toward the end of the 19th century, um, a, group, a group of Scottish unbelievers decided to go on this journey to um, expose the errors in the Bible. Um, and there was a man called uh, Sir William Ramsey, and his job out of this group was Acts 27. He was assigned to Acts 27. Um, and he had to go to every single location. And he had to go and disprove the details which Luke mentions. Because Luke writes Acts. Um, and he had to go and disprove Acts. But in fact, on his journey of going through every single one of these locations, not only does he found that it was perfectly accurate to the detail, he actually becomes saved through that. Um, and and um, this man, Sir William Ramsey, uh, he quotes and he says, he came to the conclusion that not only was Luke a great historian, but that Luke was among the historians of the first rank. So he lifts him above like the bib- biblical text and he places him in, a, in, a, um, in a, almost like a space of his own regarding the history of the world, regarding this specific chapter. And... Um, he was knighted for his efforts, 
And even though he turned the entire academic scholarly community on its head when he transitioned from the very high critical view to actually accepting the truth of, of Acts. And he wrote many books to defend that, which is really awesome. Um, so fun fact, so this is a disclaimer, this is a true story. Um, <laughs> I'm not reading a myth. Uh, everything that happens is crazy as it sounds, this is truth. Um, all right, so let me start from verse 27. I'm going to jump around, so I'll mention when I jump to the next verse. Uh, verse 27, and when it was, oh, verse 1, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. We're jumping to verse 9 now. And since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Verse 33 As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. In verse 42, the soldiers' plans was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. 
And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So quite a, quite a bulky piece of scripture. But, um, you know, I think, I think Luke extends this chapter very deliberately because we really need to understand how dragged out and how absolutely excruciating this journey was on this ship. And I, I skip so much just because it's that long. But if you read this chapter, like, we see how these guys try to, like, save the ship and how hard they work, and it just, it just doesn't go well for them. And so one thing we are quite clear of and one thing we can see is that there's a crisis in this story, in this chapter. And, and more specifically, it's Paul's crisis. Um, and why I say it's Paul's crisis, in, in verse 1 it says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners. And so to give some context, they delivered, who is they and who delivered him, um, and why did they deliver him, uh, goes back all the way to Acts 21. Um, Paul had been sailing, Paul had been planting churches, been preaching to the Gentiles, been seeing people getting saved, and he arrives in Jerusalem and he meets James and the elders, of, and they are the head of the Jerusalem church. And, um, and, and they are super excited to see Paul. They're like, we are amazed of the stories we're hearing about the Gentiles getting saved. But there's one problem. There are rumors that you do not respect the law and that you not, do not obey the law. And in fact, there are rumors that you are teaching other Jewish Christians to disregard the law completely. And so Paul is, Paul is, is asking James and the elders, okay, what, what can be done? What should we do to fix this? And, and James and elders says that we have four men that have taken vows. And so we want you to actually go with them to the temple, pay the fees for them to actually finish their vows, and then purify yourself in the temple so that, um, and to quote this quickly out of Acts 21, it says that, that all will know that there is nothing in what they have told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So Paul submits to James and to the elders, and he goes ahead with this plan, not for his own good, but for the good of the church, for the good of the Christians. He submits to them, and he goes through this process. And, and it's in this process where he's in the temple in Acts 21 where someone recognizes him and they stir up an angry mob and they nearly kill him. And uh, the centurion soldiers have to, or the Roman soldiers have to intervene and basically save him and protect him from the Jewish people. And this whole thing starts playing out. And Paul starts going through, um, he starts going through hearings, through the governor. And, and this is a whole play out from Acts 21 up until Acts 27. And... To, to give you a quick list, like he's almost killed, he's beaten, he barely escapes flogging because he's a Roman citizen, he's arrested, almost assassinated, and then finally he gets to the place where he appeals to Caesar to go to Rome. So out of a really nice act of his heart, a selfless act, it hasn't really paid him out well so far. Um, and, and all this has been happening over the course of three years. And so Paul is now, and this is where we are in verse 1, where Paul is now delivered. After appealing to Caesar in Rome, he is now delivered by the Roman soldiers, 
um, to, this name, to this guy named Julius, a centurion. And, um, and the interesting part is that Paul is delivered with the other prisoners. But Paul is innocent. Paul has done nothing wrong. In Acts 26, the King Agrippa and the actual governor, he actually says, like, I don't even know what to write to Caesar to tell him why he's seeing this guy. Like, there's nothing I can hold against Paul. But yet, Paul is seen as a prisoner. He is innocent, yet he is delivered with the guilty. And so he walks onto the ship, and what we see of Paul is that he actually submits so beautifully as this prisoner, right? He humbles himself, and he he goes with these men that are guilty. And verse 9 says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so, so people, back in the day, it, it was considered to, to travel, or traveling between mid-September and mid-November was extremely dangerous. It was a little bit of a, a suicide mission, if you could call it that. Um, and the fast, which is spoken about here, which was already over, was the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement usually happened around end of September, and Luke is telling us that it's already over, which means we are already in October, and so we are very much heading towards dangerous times of sailing. But, and so, so this is a well-known fact. The centurion is aware of this. But Paul then also approaches him with a bunch of personal experience. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord, or he doesn't come to him as a prophet. He comes to him as a man that has experience of sailing. And um, up until this, Acts 27, Paul, Luke records around 11 sea journeys that Paul has taken up until now. And uh, his historians actually say that he's actually done more or less around 3,000 miles on the sea. Plus, he's been shipwrecked three times. So he's been around. <laughs> he knows the ship inside out, and he knows what it's like to be on it and off it, right? And so, so Paul comes out of experience and not only concerned for his own life, but he comes with the concern for the cargo, and he comes for the concern for the lives of others. And, um, and he makes the centurion aware of this. But this centurion, it says that he ignored him. And he paid more attention to the men, the owner, the pilot of the ship, and the owner of the ship. And, and Paul enters into one of the most intense storms that might cost his life based on someone else's decision. Um, and I would maybe even say based on someone else's ignorance. Because he had the facts and he had the warning and he still ignored him. And so I want to ask a hard question this morning, if, if we had to swap places with Paul and we had to, you know, experience what Paul is experiencing right now, how would we respond? Where would our hearts be? If we bring the facts, we tell someone, this is what's going to happen, they're like, no. And, and here you go. And your life is at risk. And in fact, maybe we can take our own crisis, what we are struggling with at the moment, and we throw it in there. And, and sometimes 
the hardest, most damaging, most hurtful times and things we experience is the things that happen to us because of others. Um, and, and to flip that coin around, sometimes we are the ones that instill that pain and that hurt onto others because of our own ignorance. Or you might have been the one previously with the experience where you come to someone, you're like, I love you, I am telling you, please, I have been down this road, do not, do not go. And they ignore you. Or you might have been the other one that you experienced the warning. You experienced the wisdom. Someone shared with you and warned you and you ignored them and you are now in a storm and you don't really know how to navigate out of it. And, and so Julius the Centurion makes this executive decision on behalf of everyone and especially Paul and he says, no, we continue sailing. And not because, not because the Fair Havens, it explains Fair Havens, that it was unfit. It wasn't ideal. But he was rather willing to put everyone's lives at risk instead of having an uncomfortable winter. And so to explain a little bit about the centurion man, you know, we might say like, okay, maybe he had lapsed judgment or... You know, maybe he wasn't, he wasn't having his best day or maybe he wasn't fit to make that call. But a centurion comes from the word century, which means a centurion soldier had a hundred soldiers who he was leading. So he was a man of extreme authority, extreme power, very powerful man. And, and you could only be made a centurion after around 15, 15 years of service. So he ha- he's loyal, he's experienced. And on top of that, he's an extremely brave man. Whenever there was a war, the centurion men would have been the front-line men. They would have been the men that broke the first line of defense because they were some of the best uh, fighters in the entire Roman army. And so not only does he have this great status, he had wealth. They earned almost five times more than the average soldier. And so if we look at... Julius, like, on paper, it looks really good. It looks like he's got all the qualities to make a good decision. Um, but what we end up seeing is that all of these great qualities doesn't change his inner conviction and his inner heart, his true character, in order to make a call that protects others, that allows him to place others' lives above himself. And I, I wonder... You know, if there was maybe a part of, of his ego and his reputation in there, imagine he listened to Paul. How many of his soldiers would have disrespected him and be like, how can you listen to a prisoner? Now we're making calls based on prisoners' experience. But we see Paul display a different character than, than Julius. And even though, like I said, he walked onto the ship innocent, He had done nothing wrong. In fact, he had endured three years of absolute horror based on a selfless act. He walks onto the ship as a prisoner, seen as guilty even though he's innocent. And he submits unto Julius. He he submits and sees him as as his authority. And then he still comes out of a good heart, out of love, not only for Julius, but for everyone on that ship. And he says, this is my experience. This is my wisdom. 
and he's ignored. And Paul still remains consistent. Paul doesn't flare. He doesn't like kickboxes. He remains consistent. And, and like the centurion, sometimes our best qualities, which we sort of pride ourselves in, like I'm loyal, I, am, you know, I have experience, sometimes our best qualities are put to test when we face circumstances. When, we, when the envir- environment around us shifts and we tend to see parts of, of our hearts and our character that really needs Jesus. And one of them are bad circumstances, like this storm. And it's easy when we bring the storm upon ourselves, but what if someone else brings the storm on you? Or what if you don't have control over the circumstances and you're stuck? How do we respond? And it's not only the bad circumstances, but it's also the good circumstances. Like the centurion, when we are in control. When we have the the power to call the shots. When listening to a prisoner becomes optional. You know, when we are self-sustained and self-sufficient. And someone offers wisdom and experience and warning. And we're like, "I I don't need to listen to you. Like, don't worry, I've got this. And, and our, our hearts and our humility to receive feedback and to receive wisdom and experience from others, even if they are lower than us, that door closes. And then there's another thing that reveals character, and that is how people treat us. How do we respond when we are ignored, when we are not loved and accepted and our opinion and our, you know, what we bring to the table is not valued. How do we respond? Um, do we respond in the same way? Then do we also ignore them? And I, I'm preaching to myself. Uh, and these are not the type of things that we can just ignore and sweep under the rug. These things do cause damage. It does hurt, and it costs us. Whether we realize it or not, like it is, it will cost us something. And so how we respond to the storm through the character which the Lord builds in us is critical because it stretches so much further than just us. And we're going to see how the character which Paul has entering into the storm, how that allows him to stand strong, how that allows him to to reach so much further than just himself. And so verse 18 says, since we were violently storm-tossed, and this is now the result of Julius's decision, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And it's, it's like there's a, there's a standstill moment in this chapter where Paul pauses everything and he, he almost like, up until here we've been fighting, we've been trying to save the ship, we've been wrestling, like, but, but in this moment Paul stops, uh, Luke stops and it says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
And this is truly a moment of hopelessness, a moment of giving up. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, like these men were coming to, were coming to the fact that we, we're going to die. We're actually going to lose our lives now. And I wonder how much of us would return to blame or would return to anger. But in this time where it mentions that the sun, the sun and the stars appeared, hadn't appeared for many days, and by, by that time there was no compasses, that was the way how they navigated the sea. That was how they knew where they were going and where they were. And so with everyone being completely lost, and on top of that, the storm is still going. Uh, in the middle of the storm, lost, making peace with the fact that we are going to die now, Paul is able to stand up. But before he stands up, Luke writes that our, all of our, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. He includes himself in Paul. And there was a moment where we lost hope. There was a moment we, we also, like, we were down under. But in verse 21, like, Paul stands up and he says, he stands up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So Paul has a beautiful opportunity to really nail through, you know, where his comeback could have been payback in this moment. And, and Paul has the opportunity to really, like, let them know how they have failed. But he doesn't do that. He, he acknowledges the circumstances. He acknowledges the wrong and, and what they've done. But he doesn't linger on that. He moves on and he says, yet now I urge you to take heart. Yes, you were wrong. But now listen to me. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And I think there was a place here, and I think it's so easy to miss because it's the two verses on top of one another. But I really believe that before Paul could say, men, take heart, he had to take heart for himself. Because in Luke, in, in verse 20, it says that we also lost hope. And then we hear that, oh, there was an angel that stood before him that stirred his heart. And that, for me, shows that Paul in the middle of the storm, turned to seek the face of the Lord. That in order to find hope and in order to find direction in a place where all direction was lost, Paul, because he had relationship with the God to whom he belonged and whom he worships, he was able to stir up hope. He was able to take art. And not only that, he was able to give that to the people around him. That's nice. <laughs> um, and so he was able to stand up and to encourage those around him. And then there's something that, that, that reveals to us, we, we've spoken about Paul's character, 
And this is the important thing is that even though you are not in a storm, your character is essential for the storm. Because if your character is not in place before the storm, you will not have hope. If we are not anchored and built, if our character is not built on Jesus and Jesus alone, we will struggle to navigate the storm. And, and Paul reveals this. He says, for this night there stood before me an angel, but the angel is not the focus. It's the angel of the God whom I belong and worship. And so Paul understood something before he even came onto the ship. He understood that I belong to God, which means that God is my master and I'm his servant. And, and I want to represent him as well as I can wherever I go. And so if I belong to God, first of all, then I can submit under Julius because I know I don't belong to him. If I'm a prisoner and a servant of the gospel, then I know I'm, even though I am guilty, I know I'm innocent because I know of the God to who I belong to. And, and then the worship, he worships, the God whom he worships, is the one he proclaims. It's the one above all things, above his him being acknowledged when he's ignored. Him being loved and praised for his selfless acts and where in fact he's almost killed because he worships a God above all those things. And he has committed himself to becoming more and more and more like Jesus. He is able to, to take this word and he stands up and he says, um, he stands up and says that, Take heart, men. And so through that character, it's almost like the character that was built on the Lord. He stands on that and he's able to stir up hope in himself through the help of the Lord. And he stirs up hope and he says, men, take heart. And I, uh, through preparing this, this message, I really felt like that was something I just felt like the Lord really wants to communicate to every single one of us. We have experienced so many things over the past two years, whether you are a Christian or not, like the, our world has been shaken over the past two years. And some of us are through the storm and some of us are still right in the middle of it. But I do feel like the Lord is, wants to speak to every single one of us and say, take heart. Take heart. Don't lose hope. Don't look to the, the sun and the stars. Don't look to the logic. Take heart. Because he says that, take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And I think there's also a part there where we sometimes need to make peace with ships in our life. Where the Lord says, like, I'm after you, not the ship. Like, I will save you, but you have to let the ship go. And, and where might there have been things that have been in our lives, which we know the Lord has told us, like, I'm going to save you, but this, this thing needs to be wrecked. The ship needs to be let go of. And I want to urge us to take heart when the Lord says, let the ship go. And, and, and Paul is able to, through the character and through what, who he, he, through knowing who he belongs to and knowing who he worships, He's able to not only stir up hope for himself, but he stirs up hope for all the men around him. 
And in the same way, Jesus, very much like Paul, came to earth and he stepped into our, into our boat. He stepped into earth as a, as a prisoner. He came innocent, yet he came to men that were sinful. And unlike Paul, Paul knew that he would be saved, but Jesus knew the opposite. Jesus knew that he would die. And regardless of all we've done and regardless of all our sin, the Lord chooses to step into a a storm which was not his own. It was not his own storm. It was our choice that brought that storm upon ourselves. And Jesus says, I am willing to step into that storm. And I'm willing to endure that storm so that I can say, like Paul said, that none of you will be lost. For you personally, Jesus stands up and he can say to every single one of us, take heart, because I have endured this storm. And that's why, and Paul understood this, and he he says in, in Romans 5, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but he understood this and he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we can have hope. We can have hope because hope, a hope that is set on the Lord will never put us to shame. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.